1: Well, hello and welcome. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few minutes, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink, the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group, will join us to talk about family law issues such as what do we need to pay the most attention to at the start of a new year? And we'll take your calls as well. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this first week of the new year. Canadians are entering the new year brimming with consumer confidence. According to the latest confidence survey, we are the most confident. We've been about our economy since oh nine. The two major drivers, employment levels and wages. At five point seven percent, our unemployment level is the lowest it's been in forty years, and wages have grown for twelve straight months, making consumers feel better. So where are we most and least confident? The greatest optimism these days is in Quebec, where the jobless rate is at all time lows. And folks on the prairies are feeling better these days as well. As the price of oil slowly returns, the least optimistic are the maritime provinces where unemployment levels remain higher. One other interesting fact from this survey is the degree of confidence we continue to have in the housing market. Despite the new mortgage rules stress test... And the possibility of higher interest rates on the way. This time, 42% of Canadians said they expect house prices, price prices rather, to continue to increase. That's five percent higher than the usual average. And lest we get carried away by too much good news. The people at GasBuddy.com are predicting Canadians will see the highest gas prices we've seen since 2014 this year. The strong economy also brings with it strong demand for fuel products. This record high demand will be worldwide. It's not just a Canadian thing this year, with January likely to be the cheapest month and September the most expensive. As usual, Vancouver, Victoria and Montreal will be the most expensive cities in the country to buy gas. And as always, it's about those add-on taxes. Across the country, GasBuddy.com predicts a 5% per liter increase this year. And if their predictions are correct, this year will be the fourth in a row that we're seeing an increasing demand for fuel. No surprises here, but no relief either. And the carbon tax hike of another 1.2 cents per liter kicks in April 1st for all of B.C. After what seemed like weeks of shopping, you may be left feeling all shopped out. But the folks at Consumers Report advise, if you can stand a little more of it, There are some great deals to be found in January. We all know about January white sales and deals on bedding and linens, and they're still very much around. But TVs, and of all things, exercise equipment, are also items that can be picked up at great discounts in January. Treadmills, elliptical exercise, and even bathroom scales can be found at reduced prices these days. And as for buying that new TV... It's the pre-Super Bowl discount season for many retailers, and the trick is to do enough homework and shopping around that you actually do find a great deal, and they are out there. Of course, for many of us, the deals may very well be out there. The ability to afford them is not happening right now. At least until we get those Christmas bills taken care of. And about those holiday spending bills, you're feeling out of money and options. Well, almost. You see, in the States, some are putting down a few bucks on tonight's Powerball lottery draw as a possible remedy for those Christmas bills. Jackpot? Oh, $550 million. Remember, though, it's the USA, so your winnings are tactible, uh, taxable, rather. so take a third off before starting to count the cash, which would still smooth out all your financial difficulties. Yeah, it's only 210 You can still pop over the line and scoop a ticket in Washington State. The big draw is tonight. And a good news story to begin the new year. Police in Louisiana have arrested one of those Nigerian princes we all make fun of when we talk about online scams. You know, the one where someone poses as a prince who needs to get his money out of his country and promises the victims a piece of the action in return for short-term assistance like a loan or money transfer. Sure, it's old, but remember... These bad guys have ripped off thousands of unsuspecting people all over the world. In this case in Louisiana, cops busted a 67-year-old man and charged him with 269 counts of wire fraud and money laundering. According to cybersecurity experts by the way, this Nigerian prince scam and others just like it still represents 51% of all the scams going on around the world at this time. At least there's now one less con man in the game. Those are some of the stories we're following this week. We'll look at a few more later in the show, and we'll have a steel report for you, too. Coming up in just a few moments, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink, the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group, will be in studio to talk about family law issues and to take your calls, too. And we look forward to hearing from you. Stay with us. This is Vancouver Consumer on 980 CKNW. And welcome back to the program on this socked-in Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by two of the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group. Always a pleasure to say hello and welcome back to Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Heunick. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to see you again.
2: It's great to be here,
1: Sterling. Good to be here. And Happy New Year to you both, ever ever so belatedly, just a few days into the year. Oh, and with the new year in mind, uh, effective January 1st, have there been any automatic changes to family law in British Columbia? I know we had... Medicare premiums uh, altered a little bit. ICBC premiums are going to change a little bit. How about on the family law dossier?
2: Any automatic changes, Stuart, on January 1st? Nothing has really changed specifically uh, in the law uh, as of January 1st. Uh, The only most recent change is that the federal government has issued new child support guidelines with new dollar amounts for various income levels. I believe that came out in November or December. Uh, So that's in effect now. There are new tables. So if you're paying child support, to somebody there there is a case from the Supreme Court of Canada called the DBS decision which does say that payors of child support have a positive duty to make a correction or a change to their child support amount each month uh, when there are new table amounts or when their incomes have changed. So um, so if you are a payor, uh, you do have a duty to uh, to at least know what the changes to are. To know what the changes are, you can look it up online and you can adjust your payments of child support. If you don't do that, you're at risk that even up to 3 years later your spouse can come back and say uh, I want a retroactive uh, adjustment of child support for what he should have been paying me for the last three years because he he should have known that the child support table's increased or he should have known that his own income increased um, to, to therefore increasing his own monthly payment. So if you ignore that, you do that at your own risk.
1: Exactly. So now, Ron, as the counsel in this particular affair, would you be calling clients who are uh, paying child support and who might be affected by these new numbers uh, in the new plug-in uh, plan that, that it would... Was revised in November. Are you saying, look, you better take a look at this because your numbers may change too?
3: Well, generally, most of the clients that we have at this time are in the interim stage, and by the trial, we would correct that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. And but one other thing has uh, has come up as a result of the, the mortgage rules, and you, you, you'd often think this isn't really a family law problem, but it can be. And that's because in most cases, people have to sell the family home, and those that are up for sale or who are looking to think about selling their house, everybody's in a quandary about what the impact of those new mortgage rules are going to be. Sure, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so some people are taking a little bit longer to get their houses listed because they're thinking about it.
1: Interesting stuff. Now, Stuart, you and Ron have been with us on a few occasions uh, on Vancouver Consumer, which is why we're always so glad to see you come back. And in previous occasions, I think it was this past summer... The two, the three of us had a discussion about busy s- times of the year, the high points and low points in the family law cycle annually. And this, as it turns out, is one of the busiest times of the year for any family lawyer in British Columbia, or probably in Canada for that matter.
2: Why, Stuart? Uh, it is quite common. Uh, for some reason, uh, typically after holiday periods, we do see a, 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 an increase in the flow of divorce cases or separation cases. It, it seems to me, uh, from the, my discussions with clients, that a lot of spouses uh, who are thinking about separation don't want to do it when there's a family gathering for Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving. Um, But once that holiday uh, has passed... Uh, often on the Monday following the holiday. Um, f- we get a lot of phone calls from people who are kind of, and sp- especially New Year's, I think, as people make resolutions at New Year's to get, you know, to change their old habits or get sure. rid of bad relationships. Right. And so in the, usually in the first week following New Year's, we get an increase in in clients calling for divorces or separation or advice about uh, separation, divorce, and custody. So I just think it's the idea that they don't want to expose the, the family to the stress of, uh, of a separation prior to the holiday or during the holiday. So it, it tends to come up after each, uh, after each holiday period.
1: And I guess, Ron, if you were on the bubble emotionally going into the holidays and it didn't go well, that kind of seals the deal, too, doesn't it?
3: There's nothing like Christmas to, uh, <laughs> to bring out a little conflict and, uh, well, a little bit of appreciation for, uh, uh, for the faults that you were able to ignore for a little while. That's right,
1: exactly. And what is the process? Now, suppose, Stuart, someone has called your office this week based on that set of circumstances. Yes. They've been sitting onto this. It's been on a slow boil for a while. The holidays were the clincher. This thing is done. Right.
2: So how does it begin? What so do you do? The, the normal way it works is a client calls up uh, or emails us uh, from our website, uh, www.zuckermanlaw.ca, um, and uh, they request an initial consultation or they speak to our receptionist and ask to speak to a lawyer, and they're booked in for for a free initial half-hour consultation. In that consultation, we'll have informed them as to what all their legal rights are, what their legal obligations are, what their entitlements are based on the information they provide us. And we'll also inform that client of what the cost of taking various steps for divorce, separation, custody, etc., is. So if somebody comes in and simply wants an uncontested divorce where there's no assets to be divided, there's no pensions, no RRSPs, no spousal support or child support or custody issues, they just want a divorce. Right. Um, an uncontested divorce from start to finish is typically about 50 Fifteen hundred dollars or sixteen hundred dollars, oh, okay. including taxes, disbursements, filing fees, and legal fees. Our our fees of that are only about eight hundred and ninety five dollars. The rest of it is what we incur on your behalf to get the divorce order done. Okay, uh, so you can count on spending about 1600 $1, bucks to get an uncontested divorce. Um, that's where we're not having to attend in court. We're just filing papers in court and getting a divorce order and back. And both
1: parties are amicable. Uh,
2: that's right. The, the, where the other party is going to be served and they don't respond whatsoever. That's that, that's what makes it uncontested. The other the party is served with a notice that you're asking for a divorce and that. Party party who has been served does not file any response or counterclaim so then we can proceed uncontested to just get a divorce order. On the other hand, if you're looking for anything like child support, spousal support, property division, asset division, debt division, uh, child custody, guardianship issues, any anything other than just the divorce, um, uh, such that you serve the other party and they file something saying they oppose what you're asking okay, for, right. um, then there is a next step. You can't just automatically get a divorce. The next step is called a JCC, a judicial case conference. It's a two-hour meeting or one-and-a-half-hour meeting with both lawyers, both parties, and a judge in a courtroom around a table. So you're going to the Supreme Court. You're sitting around a table with a judge. Are people under oath and the whole uh, bit? No, you're not testifying under oath. Uh, the process is confidential. It is recorded in, in case any agreements are reached, but it is a confidential process. It's called a without prejudice process. So you're okay. free to say whatever you want to say. It doesn't affect your later position. Um, and you meet with the judge and each lawyer kind of puts forward to the judge what they say this case is about and what the outcome should be in that lawyer's opinion. Uh, the, the two lawyers present their countervailing views of what they think the outcome should be and they may disagree on spousal support or what's going to happen on property division and they can ask the judge for his input or opinion based on a summary of the facts that he's just heard how he thinks this will turn out and the judge may assist the parties by saying look if I was the judge on this case a year from now hearing this this is what I predict would happen so it's better if you guys can work it out and you have the ability right there at the JCC to work out a consent order and speak to the terms of a consent order and end the entire case in that JCC it doesn't happen often Um, I have had it happen uh, a few times one of my ads talks about a, a fellow who had been kicked out of his house for two years and had been trying to get the wife to buy him out of his interest in the house and she refused. Right. We went to the JCC and at the JCC, the judge agreed with me. We had a, the valuation of the house at just over $2 million and and the wife was earning more money than the husband and I said to the to the judge and to the wife and her lawyer, look, if we're forced to proceed, not only is he going to get more than a million dollars because the house is worth two point one or whatever, mm-hmm. but also um, you, the wife is earning $60,000 and he's earning $20,000. It's a long-term marriage. She's going to pay him spousal support and he's prepared to walk away today for just the million bucks for just his half of the house. We ended up making an order that day for a million dollars to be paid to the husband he was paid the next week and the whole case resolved all in a JCC. That's very unusual that right, that happens, right. but it can happen uh, at a JCC.
1: So, there, are, there, are in ter- Ron, in terms of the individuals being drawn into the process, the first step is to consult a lawyer. Uh, 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 ZuckermanLaw.ca is a great place to find a good one. Uh, and so you have that initial conference, that half-hour opportunity for the person. And I would imagine, Ron, a lot of people in that first half-hour are in a pretty much a state of shock. They've just disconnected themselves from a, an incredibly intricate emotional relationship that's gone on forever in a day without perhaps thinking through all of the implications. So now they're sitting in a lawyer's office finding out what,
3: what's what exactly exactly and it's it 's not an easy process for anybody, but <clears throat> I have to say honestly the, the type of person you uh, you suggested does arise from time to time, but most of the people have given it a few weeks, a few months of thought, they have some ideas uh, about what their exposures might be, and they want to know the answers to these and uh, generally, if we get uh, if we get a pretty good glimpse of what the facts are, we can give a pretty good idea of the, the general direction of your outcome. What we can't do is take somebody who simply says, um, what are my rights? They don't exist in a vacuum, and this is really important for okay. people to remember. Your, uh, your case is going to depend on its facts to a large extent, and that leads us to something else. How do you prove your facts? How do you keep your documents? Well, this is something we run into all the time, and I'll tell you why the The reason is uh, most of the uh most of the facts concerning asset division now are completely different under our new family law than they were under the old uh, family relations act okay and what happens is you have to pay very close attention the court does that is uh, to what the values of these various assets were uh, at several different times, when you got them, when you started your relationship with uh, your spouse, uh, when they were sold, if they were sold during the marriage, how much they were sold for. uh, And and in cases where uh, it's not clear when the relationship ended, things, documents, uh, recordings, uh, letters that would tend to show when the relationship ended. So the bottom line, Keep your documents. Right, right. And, and
1: I, I sound, I'm judging by the expression on your face that it's a frustration that you encounter frequently people's inability to have that proof at their fingertips.
3: Well, with absolutely, uh, Sterling. Now that people do so much uh, online, they tend to throw out their paper. But uh, uh, sometimes the paper is the only way to prove it uh, because many of these uh, agencies, whether it's a bank or, uh, or otherwise, they destroy all their records sure. after seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, keep your documents. Um, you, why? not because you uh, you want to make things difficult for your spouse, but you want to avoid if you 're going to have a dispute, have it be on the law, not on the facts, not on things that are easier to prove if you hold your documents
2: of course under under the new act, under the family law Act, which came into a force in two thousand and thirteen the we 're now looking at the what each spouse is entitled to is fifty percent of the Increase in equity from the date of cohabitation to okay. the date of separation. So, right. if you began cohabiting more than seven years ago and you had an RRSP more than seven years ago, uh, and you want to say now that you've separated, that I want to my, you you want to say, look, when I got together with my spouse, my RRSP was worth a hundred thousand. That is separate; it should it should be excluded from division. It's only the growth in that RRSP. It's now worth oh, okay. it's now worth two fifty. So it's only the last hundred and fifty thousand that's subject to the fifty fifty split. Is that the case? Th- really? That is the case. Okay, good. But <laughs> only if you can. prove prove Aha. that you had a 100,000 in your RSPs on the date of cohabitation. So you need to be able to go back and get bank records uh, or have some other testimony that will convince a court that you, in fact, had, or your spouse has to agree that they were aware um, that you had that 100,000 in the RSP when you first met them in order to get that exclusion. So it is important to save your documents and be able to prove those things. Interesting stuff. I want to open up the
1: phone lines because when you fellows arrive on the radio, uh, our, our listeners respond vigorously. So let's open up the phone lines now. We're going to take a break at bottom of the hour from the news, after which we'll take your calls to Ron Heunick and Stuart Zuckerman from the Zuckerman Law Group. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Yes, it's free legal advice. Of course it is. But again, we're talking on the phone. We can't be too, too specific, but we will happily take your calls and offer what advice we're able to. I wanted to ask you about restraining orders. It's an uh, unexpected question from me, perhaps, but I keep hearing, well, you know, she had a restraining order against the guy, and then the next thing is, ah, they're not worth the paper they're written on. What's the story with restraining orders? How effective are they? Uh,
2: Well, um, the restraining orders are granted if the evidence presented to the court satisfies the court that someone is in need of protection uh, or has a fear of violence from their spouse. Uh, they are effective in terms of uh, when you get a restraining order, especially initially, the, the police will will uh, arrive at your home if there's been an assault, and even in the absence of a restraining order, if there's an admission of an assault or evidence of an assault, they will remove the assaulting spouse, and and he will have to sign a peace bond to not enter the home. Okay, um, which well, is a form of restraining. It, it is a form of restraining exactly. order. So right. that's the kind of civil or criminal restraining order that's issued automatically. And then there are restraining orders that where people, people hire us to go to court and get a restraining order for them. And it's an order of the Supreme Court that can restrain a spouse from attending within a certain distance of a home or mm-hmm. attending at the work of the other uh, spouse. It's really in terms of effectiveness, it's when the person breaches that order and the person who obtained the order calls the police and says, I have a restraining order right. and this guy has just shown up on my front door. Right. That's when it becomes effective because the police will show up and arrest the guy and he can now be sentenced to time in jail for breaching the order. So why there
1: there so much cynicism about him then?
2: Well, the problem is, of course, it's a piece of paper yeah. uh, that, that simply tells the husband, you are not permitted to attend at this home. Now, if the husband chooses to breach that order and just show up at the home, right. and if he's wielding a knife or a gun, often you know, horrible things. I've been involved in two cases where the, sp- the female spouse was murdered uh, by the husband. Um, uh, regardless of restraining orders because it, it's a piece of paper. The sure. husband can still show up and shoot somebody if he chooses to do that. Right. Um, it's just that his his penalty afterwards, his sentencing may be worse if there was a, a previous restraining order that he breached rather than just a crime of passion where he something happened in the heat of the moment. You know, somebody, mm, who, somebody who breaches an order is, is making a decision to ignore the order of the court uh, and it's, it makes their, the penalty uh, phase worse for them in criminal law.
1: Interesting. I'm glad I asked. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Heunick, the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group, in studio on Vancouver Consumer, will take your calls right after the news to the bottom of the hour. It is 2.34. Sterling Fox with you on this socked-in Saturday afternoon. Nice and warm, though. No complaints in that department. We're talking with the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group today on Vancouver Consumer Ron Hunink and Stuart Zuckerman himself in studio. And, of course, we have opened our phone lines at 280-9898. Of course, with the obligatory 604 up front, 604-280-9898. Our lines are open to the lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group. And we'll start in Surrey. Eileen, thank you for waiting. Hello. Hi, oh,
2: I have a question. My husband is studying me online, and I would like to know if this
4: kind of evidence would be helpful in my divorce case. Would I be able to get a bigger share of assets?
2: Uh, Well, it's a common question that we get from spouses who uh, say, I have proof that my spouse is cheating on me, um, and what's the impact of that? Uh, And and the answer is that um, often it has very little, uh, if any, impact uh, on uh, anything of substance. A, a, A cheating spouse, if you have proof of uh, of uh, an adulterous affair if it 's admitted or it 's proven uh, almost beyond a reasonable doubt that that uh, that your partner has had intercourse with another uh, adult that can that can speed up the granting of the divorce because it 's a ground for divorce, so you can get your divorce quicker rather than the normal one year separation you may be able to get your divorce in six months or three months um, if you have proof of the adultery but other than that it the the divorce act and the Family Law Act both have provisions in them which say that the court is not permitted. The judge who hears the case is not permitted to consider conduct of a spouse when dividing assets or awarding spousal support or child support or custody or guardianship of children. So the fact that your spouse has cheated on you has no impact on custody, guardianship, property division, spousal support whatsoever, no matter what level of proof uh, you have that it took place because it's considered moral conduct. Uh, it's not relevant to to those issues. The only time it becomes relevant is if the spouse inappropriately involved the child or exposed a child to sexual acts or to some inappropriate sexual behavior. That certainly can have an impact on that person's parenting time or their custody or guardianship rights. But absent... Uh, improper involvement of a child in those uh, matters, um, it won't have any impact on the family law proceeding.
1: Back to your point, both of you, Ron and Stuart, uh, further to Eileen's question uh, in, in this, the the uh, it, it's back to the point, Ron, you made about keep all your documents. Now, Eileen is in the process, Stuart, of, of collecting information to prove that her husband is cheating on yes. her, which may if the evidence is presented in such a way, at least accelerate the pace of the granting of the divorce. That's
2: correct, yeah. Normally you have to wait at least a year in order to get the divorce granted, but uh, if you have proof of adultery, you may be able to get, or if the other party admits the adultery, you can get the divorce granted much sooner.
1: So, Eileen, hang on to the evidence you're gathering.
2: For sure, thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. Bill, uh, I'm sorry, let me just get that line back and go to Bill in Langley. Hello, Bill.
4: Yeah, I wonder if you could uh, answer a question for me. Um, I've been paying spousal support for over twenty years, uh, faithfully every month, um, and the lawyer at the time didn't put an end date on it. Um, do I have to go back to the courts to to uh, to see if there should be an end date or an end date on that?
2: Well, you can negotiate. Uh, with your spouse, you can have a letter written to your spouse either by yourself or by a lawyer, uh, proposing an end date and see if there can be an agreement. Um, uh, uh, you know, we would have to see the actual language in the divorce order uh, to give you proper advice on something like this. But um, how long were you married? Uh, about 22 years. So spousal support often runs from um, the range of support is from half the duration of the marriage to the full duration of the marriage, or lifetime, if the age of the spouse, if, if the age of your wife at the date of separation um, plus the years of cohabitation equal or exceed the number 65, there's something called the rule of 65, mm-hmm. uh, where the spousal support becomes lifetime support, or is presumed to be lifetime support, if those two numbers add up to 65. So if your wife was uh, 45 years old at the time you separated and you were together for 22 years, 45 plus 22 is more than 65, sure. is 67. So that, that the, the presumption would kick in that she's entitled to lifetime support. But, but spousal support... Uh, depends on, on a number of factors. The, uh, if you came to us now, we would want to see the language in the order. We would want to know what your wife's income is. And if you didn't know it, we could write her a letter demanding that she can comp- make financial disclosure and she would have an obligation to provide financial disclosure. Um, and so it depend on changes in your income since the time the order was made, changes in her income since the time the order was made, and uh, what each of your current uh, capabilities of earning income are. So, um, you know, if, for example, if you retired, spousal support would typically reduce at the age of retirement if it was mandated retirement or necessary retirement um, at, at the normal retirement age. How's that working for you, Bill?
4: Yeah, that's working for me real well. But my concern, of course, if we go uh, before the courts, that they might increase
2: the spouse's support. It, it is a risk, and that's why you go and get, before you say anything to your spouse, you go see a lawyer Absolutely. and get independent legal advice, give right. the lawyer as much information as you can. I have had cases where someone's come to me and it looked on the face of it that they had a good case to, to vary support, and then when we looked into it in more detail, I said to them that they have a greater risk of the support being increased um, than being terminated. So they decided not to write to their spouse and not, not pursue the claim. So in in each case turns on its own facts and it's important to get independent legal advice from somebody with experience in order to uh to understand what your rights and obligations are
1: time to talk to the folks at zuckerman law by the sounds of things bill thank you very much for your call as we go to ken in east vancouver good afternoon hi a question for Stuart or or ron go ahead ken Um,
4: i signed a separation agreement with my uh ex-wife four years ago in 2013 in which we we both waived spousal,
1: and then we got divorced in 2014, and then in the summer of 2017, almost three full years later, after the divorce order, she claimed spousal
4: against me, and we've had a mediation with a judge where the judge said that she had an entitlement to spousal, um, but I've heard that she might be restricted by time limitations from claiming spousal at
1: this point. Ken, when, when you first made, your, when you agreed to, to separate, and, and did, you, did you have a written agreement that there would be no spousal considerations from either individual? Is that the basis of this, this whole conversation? Uh,
4: he, the, yeah, we did. We, we had a separation agreement that we drafted together without lawyers that, uh, in which we mutually weighed spousal. So, okay. you know, We're the the from each other. Gotcha. Okay.
2: The the answer there is um uh, kind of it's, it's a double-edged sword. There, there first of all there in the in the divorce act there there is a limitation period that you if you don't bring a, a claim for spousal support within 2 years of a divorce being granted you are barred under that act from seeking support. So so she can't seek support under the other under the divorce act because it's been more than 2 years since you've been divorced. Under the family law act however the the law is slightly different. It, it, there is this two-year limitation from the date of separation for bringing these claims um, and from the from the date of signing a separation agreement. Um, but there is also language in the Family Law Act that does allow, uh, that says that it, it's when the person ought reasonably to have known that their time limit uh, was running out. That's when the two years starts. Um, and so there, there may be an argument under the Family Law Act to, to, to slip in a claim for spousal. Uh, normally if there was a properly prepared separation agreement where you both had independent legal advice it would be extremely difficult even under that now act this
1: is a do-it-yourself Stuart yes
2: so uh, so if it had been prepared with lawyers and with lawyers giving advice when you when you signed it uh, it would have been more enforceable if the, in the absence of legal advice it's it's problematic because um, parties can claim that they have a different interpretation of certain clauses uh, you have you can look at the same language in two different people the husband thinks it means one thing and the spouse thinks it means something else and that creates the ability for the court in contract law to say there was no meeting of the minds because the two parties had different interpretations of what they were signing. So those kinds of agreements when there's no independent legal advice involved are easily challengeable. Um, so there may be a risk uh, of spousal support being awarded. Um, it's still... Uh, the the law is more on your side because first you have the agreement mm-hmm. uh, which you both signed and it may be that the spousal support waiver is very clear and that, uh, that anybody would understand what that meant and then you have the divorced a year later and no claim for support then and then you have the passage of more than two years from the divorce and more than two years from the date of separation agreement all of those things favor you in terms of support not being awarded so I'm not sure why the judge in the mediation suggested that she had a valid claim to support w- unless he addressed those things first and gave a reason why the those issues would not be given some weight by the court uh, but but it is possible that she'd have some claim again the best thing to do would get into would be now to get advice of a lawyer um, and uh, and see what the uh, what the lawyer can uh, come up with in terms and, of And
1: and again uh, again can gather up all of those documents including the D- the DIY uh, agreement that you and your spouse uh, um, f- uh, wrote up years ago and uh, again uh, zuckermanlaw.ca is the the website they have offices on 152nd Street in Surrey And uh, downtown on Mainland Street here in Vancouver, Uh, the Zuckerman Law people would be happy to see you. And again, the more, I guess, Ron, for even these uh, initial half-hour conversations that you have, at no charge, uh, it's still advisable that people show up for this, uh, this chat. Armed to the teeth with as much information about themselves and their predicament as possible.
3: Absolutely, and and Ken's case is an excellent illustration of why uh, you would need to act sooner rather than later. Sure. Uh, obviously, uh, Ken's spouse, whoever she is, uh, <clears throat> is is going to be hard done by uh, just by operation of law. Uh, so, starting earlier is better in terms of getting your advice. If that means you're gonna stick with your relationship, fine and well, a lot of us do that, but at least you know where you stand and you're not gonna miss a limitation date.
2: I'll, I'll just make one other comment about sure, our, yeah. our, our offer of initial consultations. We do with each of the eight lawyers that we have, we offer uh, a half hour initial consultation at no charge. Um, oftentimes the discussion takes more than a half an hour. It might take 45 minutes or an hour. So mm-hmm. we, may, we may go over that that half hour and spend an hour with, a, with a, an initial client. Uh, And we tell our clients, if you don't retain us, if we never see you again after that first meeting, we will not bill you for the time over the first half hour. That's all part of the initial consultation. But if you end up coming back and you retain us, then anything after the first half hour is billed at the hourly rate of the lawyer you're meeting with. So it's kind of a no risk to you meeting. Even if you spend an hour with one of our lawyers to get advice about what you're going to do, then you're informed of your rights, your obligations, your spouse's rights and obligations. And uh, you can leave and not pay any bills uh, to the lawyer. and and, And that may be the end of it. Okay, back
1: to the phones, and we're ladder next. Jason, hello. Hey, how you doing? Okay, thanks.
4: All right, um, I was just wondering, um, I bought a new townhouse uh, last year, and the house is 75% in um, my parents' name and 25% in my name. Okay. Um, So the relationship's over now. Her name was not on title. We're not married, um, and... So she's moved out. Did the
1: relationship last longer than two years? This is the only question yeah. I, the not-a-family the lawyer, know to ask. Yes. Yeah. It did. Okay. Go ahead then, Jason.
4: Yeah. And so, yeah, so she's moved out, but she's coming saying that she is entitled to a lot more, and I don't know what she's entitled to. So, so do so you... Do they-
2: the, the presumption under the Family Law Act is that she's entitled to 50% of the increase in your share of the equity. So you have a 25% stake in the equity. If that 25% of the equity, let's say it was worth $50,000 on the date that you began cohabitation and now it's worth uh, $75,000, that 25% is now. Right. So then there's been a $25,000 increase in the equity of your share of the equity. She'd be entitled to 12500 presumptively. Whether or not she contributed to the mortgage or the bills or anything else, that's the starting presumption of the law is that she gets 50% of your increase in equity from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation or often to the date that you buy her out um so so she does have an entitlement but it's limited to a to half of whatever your increase in equity has been from the date of cohabitation onward
4: perfect okay so now my parents being the 75% um ownership should they come and see you guys and like like are they going to need to retain um counsel
2: uh, they won't they wouldn't need lawyers unless um, your, your ex-spouse uh, names them in the family lawsuit and, and is claiming, for example, that they don't have a 75 percent interest. If the, if the ex-spouse accepts that they have a 75 percent interest and doesn't name them in the lawsuit and is only making a claim against you, then your parents don't need to be involved in the lawsuit at all and don't right. need lawyers. Okay. Um-
4: That's awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, guys. You guys really helped me out. All right, uh, Jason,
1: thanks very much for your call. We appreciate it. ZuckermanLaw.ca, by the way, Jason, is the website, and you'll find all the background you need about Stuart and and Ron and the other lawyers in the firm, and of course the locations of the offices in Surrey and downtown Vancouver, and the all-important phone number, which is 604-575-5464.
2: And our our website also has hundreds of blog articles on family mm -hmm. law topics that are all archived there uh, for you to hear. One of the things that's come
1: up in our conversations that i feel the need to go back to is this whole matter of going to court first and foremost you go to court all of you a lot and that is something that is important for a prospective client to know and understand the the fact is that there are people experienced with the court procedures and who are who have a a successful track record therein but the danger of going to court for you and anyone is that this part this situation is going to be resolved ultimately by a third party, an experienced third party, but with no skin in the game. This person doesn't care about the outcome and will simply evaluate the the issue based on the facts. Right, Ron? So you could lose big time and you could win big time. That's the risk of going to court, taking it to the 11th degree.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And at the Zuckerman Law Group, this is one of the things that we try to do, both at the beginning and the middle and, and closer to... Uh, the trial of a case. and Why would you do it three times? Well, a case develops over time. It develops in part because facts change, but it also develops because sometimes it takes weeks, if not months, to develop those facts, to figure out what this asset was worth way back when, sure. to figure out whether uh, when wife, for example, said, keep it all, I don't want to any of it, and put it in a text, what's the meaning of that? Mm-hmm. So the, a, a lawyer who is properly dealing with their client needs To do that analysis several different times through the case and to tell the client here's what your best case scenario your worst case scenario your middle case scenario is here's what it'll cost to get there and that's what we do at our firm
1: right and and an upfront and you mentioned this right at the beginning of the conversation mm-hmm. Stuart an upfront in that uh, that complimentary half-hour conversation where one's mm-hmm. legal position is discussed there's also a presentation of and if you decide to go forward with us here's what it's going to cost you to do this this and uh, th- this that's right. you're we'll very upfront about
2: we'll this. go through the various uh, litigation steps and what each step could costs and what the risks are at each step and what and also the risks of a cost award: if you're taking an un- unreasonable position and you go to court and lose, the court may award costs to the other party. Absolutely, we'll talk about that with with uh, potential clients. Um, that, that's one of the things from the beginning of my career. Very in, in my v- in my very before I even became a lawyer, while I was in the the bar admission course, we had somebody from Victoria uh, come uh, from the law uh, the law society and give us a talk about uh, the the most common complaints to the law society about lawyers. And one of the most common complaints is that most lawyers at that time, uh, this was uh, 1988. That I was in the bar course, uh, a lot of lawyers um, would say to a client, you know, I need a three thousand dollar retainer, or I need a five thousand dollar retainer, and my hourly rate is two hundred dollars an hour, right. and that's all they'd say. And the lawyer, the client, would hand over three or four or five thousand dollars, and then months later they'd get a bill saying they owe twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars, and the five thousand has been spent. Oh, right, and they'd complain to the law society because they weren't told what they were gonna, what was going to be spent. So they they drummed in our head, and I've from the, my first day of practice and in my very first meetings with all my clients I always say this is my hourly rate this is what it's going to cost me to first start out writing a letter this sure. is what it's going to cost to start a lawsuit this is what it's going to cost to run the judicial case conference which is mandatory under mm-hmm. the law this is what it's going to cost if we have to spend a day in court for a chambers application on interim support or interim custody here's what you're looking at if you have to go to a trial here's the range you might spend on in legal fees for a trial so all that stuff uh, is discussed up front by our lawyers with clients so no, there's no surprises the last thing we want is a client to at the end of the day say I had no idea this was going to cost me this much money we, we we tell them upfront um what the range of fees is going to be for each step of the process
1: right and, and final question to you ron and we've been down this particular short street a few times anger is not should not ever be the dominant emotion in executing the divorce process yes there's anger and frustration and and a lot of pent-up emotion but that can't be the guiding emotion or the guiding point from which everything takes place
3: absolutely and even for people who don't have children there's always going to be sometimes you, when you're going to run into each other but if you do have children Look, uh, try to run your case, and we encourage our clients always to do this. Try to run your case in a way that will not build up unnecessary resentment that you and your ex have to live with for years and years. Mm -hmm. Good points.
1: Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Heunink, the senior lawyers from the Zuckerman Law Group. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. I note that you're coming back in a couple of months, and I know our listeners will look forward to that date as much as I do. It's always a real treat to have you come in. The phones get busy, and I always learn something. Thank you both very much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. A pleasure. We're back with more right after this. And welcome back to the program, and once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hewnink from the Zuckerman Law Group for another informative visit. They'll be back with us in the first week of March, and thanks for your calls, too. They really make a difference. Next week, our friends from BC Perio will join us for their first visit of the new year with an update from the fast-paced world of modern dentistry, and they'll take your calls, too, and it always gets busy when they're in studio. Time now for the Steel Report, and today, Linda is with us to talk about healthy eating tips for 2018.
0: I'm Linda Steele and this is your Steele Report. It's a new year, and for a lot of people, that means time to begin a new diet. A big trend recently in the world of dieting includes eating lean poultry and fish in moderation, whole grains, and a bunch of veggies and fruit. That, according to a recent study by U.S. News & World Report. But while vowing to get fit and healthy is a popular way to kick off the new year, dietitian Heidi Bates has some tips so that even if you're not able to follow a specific diet to a T, you can still practice good habits, like preparing your food for the week in a advance for example. Bulk cook some soups or some chilies and freeze pieces so that you're not having to figure out what to eat at five o'clock in the evening. Cut up some vegetables on the weekend and put them in little bags because no one's going to do this. You're tired after work. She adds that when trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle and eating right, simplicity is key. Make the healthy choice be the very easiest possible choice that you can by doing a little bit of pre-prep. It will serve you very well and make your life a lot easier as well, way less stressful. So keep things simple. Because as Bates says, nobody wants to put in the effort, especially at the end of a long day. I'm Linda Steele, and that's your Steele Report.
1: Thank you, Linda Steele and Drex. Weekdays, two to six, right here on 980 CKNW. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we go. This is good news for white knuckled flyers and all travelers. Last year was the safest year ever for commercial air travel. The Aviation Safety Network, one of the agencies reporting this week, said there were no commercial passenger death, rather passenger jet fatalities in 2018, making it the safest year for aviation ever. Last year wasn't completely accident-free, but the accidents that did happen involved either cargo planes or turboprop aircraft. Over the past two decades, aviation deaths around the world have been steadily falling, and here's hoping last year's safety record is eclipsed by this year's. And here's another record we broke last year. Canadians purchased over 2 million vehicles for the first time, thanks to record sales of light trucks. New vehicle sales hit a record 50 year in a row, with 2.04 million units sold, a 5% increase from the previous year. Sales were a bit off in November and December, and car sales were down overall. But it was pickups and other light trucks that made the difference, with nearly 1.4 million of them sold last year. Ford was the sales leader, GM close behind in total volumes. And finally, as if the pressure of showing up at a gym to begin that resolution fitness program isn't enough, there's a gym in New York that's offering those programs for people who want to exercise in the buff. Yes, friends, it's time for naked workouts from a company that claims to have Tom Cruise and Sandra Bullock among its famous clients. This cheeky approach to exercise is all about allowing the skin to breathe and more endorphins to be released due to sunlight. Say Hanson Fitness, their class options, men, women, or co-ed. And if the nudity thing is just way too much, they say you can wear nude-colored underwear instead. Feel better now? I didn't think so. And that's our show for this week, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferrara and Amir Ali at the controls. I'm Sterling Fox, back again next Saturday with another edition of Vancouver Consumer, right here on CKNW.
0: The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.